Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. Palm Sunday is today, which is, uh, as Christine was saying, is a is a key moment in the Christian story. It's the day that uh, I'm sure everyone here has probably heard the story at least once or twice, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, symbolizing that he was coming to make peace. And what do we do when Jesus can make peace? Well, we crucified him, <laughs> which is uh, sad, you know, and that's what we're going to talk about on Friday is just the, the dark, sad reality that when hope showed up, we killed it. Yeah. Um, which will be just a great emotional experience for all of us. Super light. Super, yeah, exactly. Super encouraging. Um, so anyway, so yeah, show up for, uh, for Good Friday. That'll be awesome. Um, so today, what I wanted to talk, have us all talk about is um, how what Jesus did, particularly on Palm Sunday, but most, this is all of his ministry. And we're going to actually be looking at this from some of uh, his sayings on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, how Jesus changed uh, our paradigm as his followers, as, as Jesus' followers moved through history, the paradigm shift that came with that, and the kind of shifts that we're still making, essentially. Um, so I'll start with this. How often do you change your mind? Often, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, you think I'm going to go grocery shopping, but I'm going to do that tomorrow instead, Right. Or I was going to wear a blue shirt and I'm going to wear a gray one instead. But we all change our minds constantly. It's just like um, we're, we're constantly weighing the options to figure out what's the most advantageous, what's the most pleasurable, what's the most convenient, the most efficient, or most virtuous. And we do it all the time. It's like an autonomic like function of our consciousness. And the ability to detect patterns and make choices based on those patterns is baked into our circuitry as, as humans. And it's one of the things that makes us intelligent beings, but it varies because there are some things that are really easy to change your mind about, like whether you're going to have Qdoba or Chipotle for lunch, right? Basically just boils down to which one's closer. And if you want free guacamole, that's, that's the main, that's the main uh, uh, variable to consider. But then there's other things that are really hard to change your mind about. Like just as an example, what you would do for a career, like I'm going to give you a fictitious scenario and um, just try to put yourself in this situation, okay? Let's say you are a doctor and you've been practicing medicine for several years. You graduated from a prestigious medical school, which cost you a fortune, and you've yet to fully pay off the school loans. You've invested a significant portion of your life, money, mental space, and every other resource you have as a human to become a doctor, but then you realize that you're not passionate about medicine, You leave work every day depressed and burdened. You love helping people, but you're crushed by seeing how many people are suffering by the wide variety of illnesses that you treat. You think to yourself, I can't live the rest of my life like this. I need to make a change. I need to do something that I love. And you've always been deeply moved by art. uh, So you start thinking in this fictitious scenario, you start thinking about becoming a professional artist, maybe a painter or photographer. And just the thought of it creates a sense of relief and longing for a different life. But you know that to make that decision would mean an enormous amount of change and sacrifice. That's a pretty big change to make, right? 
on the one hand, as a, if you're a doctor, you have financial security, you get to help people, which is incredibly rewarding, but you're, you're constantly burdened and stressed. On the other hand, you have this dream about being an artist and living out your passion, but you know that you'll be buried in debt, you'll have to start over your education, you'll probably need to sell your house and cars and all that. You'll basically be hitting the restart button on your entire adult life. And so this is a rhetorical question, so don't answer this out loud, but like, think to yourself, what would you do in this situation if this was your reality? And I'm assuming right now that no matter what um, you would choose to do, the reason you would choose it is pretty visceral, right? It's like the path you would choose to take in that scenario actually reveals a lot about us. It's almost like you don't actually have a choice in the matter. It's like one of those two options sounds completely insane to you, right? It's like, well, why would you do that? Why would you, you know, put yourself in that situation? Like, how could you, you know, it's just like, um, so the reason I say that is because you have already chosen what you would do in that scenario by making a thousand lesser choices in your life. You've already, you chose it a while ago. Because those lesser choices uh, form the values and virtues and vices that currently undergird our human experience. And to contradict those things would feel like a violation of our nature and logic. So what I'm saying and what I'm trying to get you to think about is that our ability to change our mind is flexible, but only up to a point. Once we've hit that threshold, it's like our programming kicks in and we're influenced by all of our experiences and our previous choices. And it's not impossible to subvert that, but it makes it a lot harder. Is that making sense? It's, um, it's just kind of part of how we're wired. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Much of what Jesus did and said during his earthly ministry, I believe, was to prepare people for an enormous change of mind. Is bigger than changing your career, bigger than changing your political affiliation, bigger than changing your religion. He was preparing people for an unprecedented paradigm shift. So that's where we're headed today. We're going to be exploring the paradigm shift that Jesus initiated, what it is, why he did it, and how he did it. Um, so we'll begin, like I said, our journey today with the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is, uh, you know, you heard of the Sermon on the Mount? It's Matthew chapter 5, kind of starts in there and goes for a while. Well, it's a huge chunk, so we're not going to cover the whole thing, but um, we will be looking at it. Um, it is a collection of Jesus's most common and influential teachings, um, just, just some backstory, and it's written in narrative form, and it depicts Jesus going up on the top of a mountain with all of his disciples gathered around to hear him teach. Now, this depiction of Jesus is, is a careful choice by the author, and it's intended, this is really interesting to me, it's one of those... Uh, nerd moments that I just love. It's intended to draw the reader's mind to a specific moment in history that the original audience would have been really familiar with. And so, and that's the old, that's the story in the Old Testament about when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law and more specifically the 10 commandments from Yahweh. So everyone's somewhat familiar with those 10 commandments, right? Yeah. The movie. Yes. <laughs> these, these 15, 10 commandments. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, uh, the interesting thing that Matthew's doing here when he writes this gospel is he's organizing Jesus's teaching to be like a mirror image of the 10 commandments. Like verse 21 says, you've heard it said, 
to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. And then in 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And everyone, uh, so everyone would have immediately recognized these words, these like sayings, and the rest of the scene would kind of unfold in their mind from the Old Testament. It's kind of like Matthew's going, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> right? Like, I don't have to say Star Wars, Star Wars. But you know that's from start. You know the scene. The scene's automatically in your brain, right? Like you know. Actually, he doesn't say Luke. It's important to know that. That's the little, little uh, alternate universe where he said Luke. Um, anyway, so the reason Matthew's doing this is because he's trying to tell everybody and his readers included that Jesus is the new Moses. And in the same way that Moses was the mouthpiece of God, delivering the law and thereby prescribing the way of life for the Israelites. Jesus is now delivering a new law, or more specifically, a new interpretation of the law, and thereby prescribing a new way of life for his followers. But Matthew's audience consisted of lots of like Jewish people. So to outright say, Jesus is the new Moses would shut the conversation down immediately, right? It doesn't work. So instead, he alludes to it through imagery. It's like people are asking him, like, wait, are you saying Jesus is the new Moses? And he's like, I don't know, am I? <laughs> you tell me. It's a very Jesus-y thing to do. It's, <laughs> Jesus is such a sneaky rabbi, and his disciples took suit, which is awesome, followed suit. Um, so let's take a look at some of these passages and figure out what Jesus is trying to do. So in verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then in 27, he says, um, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus goes on to mention a few other things in this passage. He talked about retaliation and divorce and oaths and all that stuff. But these first two are kind of the clearest examples of what I think captures the sentiment of what Jesus is speaking about here. In verse 17, before all this, Jesus explains his intention for saying these things. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus says this, and then he starts to give instruction about the law which is interesting. So essentially what's happening here is why Jesus is prefacing all this is he's saying, I'm suggesting a way to live that looks like I'm abolishing the law. But just so you know, I'm not doing that. <laughs> In fact, I'm teaching you how to fulfill the law, the true purpose of the law. And the main difference in what Jesus um, is saying here. Hold on, my notes got a little confusing here. So the murder, the so the main so here's one of the main differences to look at in this murder passage. It basically says, um, "You've heard that it was said that you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with their brother or sister murders them in his heart." And then also in the adultery passage, he says, "You shall not commit." It said, "You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with." Her in his heart. So what do you think Jesus is doing? What, and this is the question I'm just throwing out to you and I'd love to hear your feedback. What do you think the change of mind Jesus is advocating for here?
yeah, so what I perceive that Jesus is trying to do, um, I think everyone's kind of like alluding to this, is that Jesus is taking um, this teaching. And this, like I said, these are Jesus's most common teachings. He would do this a lot, you know. And he's trying to get people to shift their focus from their actions to their intentions, right? From their behaviors to their motivations. He's saying that it doesn't fulfill the law to simply not kill someone. It keeps it, which is great. We should keep the law, but it doesn't fulfill it. So the importance of fulfilling it, right? What is, why, why is it not enough to just keep it? And that kind of, I think, gets to the paradigm shift that Jesus is initiating. He had a vision for the kingdom of heaven that was sort of a mixed reality where it's heaven on earth. And this is why when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Think of it this way. If God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, then how would you be able to tell which is earth and which is heaven? Would it even matter? Right? And I, I think that's the king, that's the kingdom that Jesus is trying to get us to imagine. Is like maybe we maybe if we pursue loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors ourselves, and really doing it and actually fulfilling the law. Maybe we wouldn't be longing to get out of here, you know? Maybe we could actually enjoy the fullness of God's blessing in this life. So when, when we see the kingdom described throughout the New Testament, we see that it's a place with no more war or sickness or famine, and it's a place where there's peace and unity among all people. But to achieve this, it's not the kind of thing you can just choose to happen. If you look at our society now, we're just so far from a world without conflict and illness and strife. I mean, if you just like have been following all the stuff happening in Ukraine, it's a perfect example of that violence and injustice are very much a part of our world. It's like horrifying. Some of the images and clips of video that are coming out like, I, I feel like I open up my, like, Google News thing, and I'm just like, I, gotta, I can't look at this. And I, I need to. I need to look at it because I need to know um, the state of the world. But I also just, like, can't handle it at the same time. It's just terrible. That does not look like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And that's what I'm saying is, like, the kingdom of heaven isn't something that would just happen if everyone on the planet decided one day to just obey the law and stop killing each other and stop stealing from each other because we can't just stop. That It's impossible. We can't just stop fighting wars. We can't just stop carbon emissions. We can't just stop the porn industry and all the, the uh, adjacent sexually explicit content in the entertainment industry. Like You can't just hit the off switch on these things. You can't just turn off arms manufacturing because there's no off switch. Our civilization is too complex to start from the top. So what do we do? Well, we need to start from the bottom, right? And from the paradigm shift of the individual is what we need to do. 
I mean, here's just an idea, and you'll never find this in the Bible, but what if we as individuals like loved our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, and strength, and loved our neighbor as ourselves, right? What would happen? The kingdom of heaven, I don't think, can break into our reality by trying to force it from the top down, by using power to enforce it upon people who don't desire it or believe in it. Instead, the kingdom of heaven breaks through when people's imagine, imaginations are captured and our hearts are stirred by the idea of a world where God's will is done as it is in heaven. Because when you try to enforce these things with power from the top, what you get is law keeping. And that's already happening most of the time. We're not murdering each other. Most of the time, we're not stealing from each other. But clearly that's not enough. Clearly, it just, it doesn't sustain peace. For any amount of significant time, it can't. And that's precisely why Jesus goes to the heart, is he knows that law-keeping is not the solution. And in fact, is not even truly obedience without the heart change first. So this is a big part of the paradigm shift that Jesus is initiating. He's, he's doing this because the kingdom of heaven starts in the heart and it can't be enforced. It like only can happen if it's mutually dreamt of. If it's our mutual dream to see something happen, our collective imagination is captivated by the image of God's kingdom coming to earth. God's kingdom being real, being manifested among us. It has to be a mutual dream. So I'd love to interact with you a little bit on this one. When you imagine God's kingdom manifesting in our real life, not like, you know, the eschatological kingdom of heaven that's going to happen at the end of time. I'm talking like the kingdom of heaven now, the one that's at hand. And you and it's in your dream. It's you've got the dream, you've got the vision. What do you see? What do you dream of? What would be different? So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's planting the seeds of the dream. And he urges us to love our enemy instead of hating them, to respect and honor others' bodies instead of lusting after them, and to speak honestly and to not retaliate. And so after these seeds are planted, they begin to grow, right? That's the natural course. And that growth is going to take many different forms for each person. And it's going to be a little bit different depending on your environment and your experiences. I think that's kind of part of the, the like the right, the right now aspect of the kingdom of heaven being manifested is it's like, it's not going to happen all at once. And in like for each of us, not like major group think shifts. It's going to start with shifts individually that will accumulate right into groupthink shifts for example if you're in a competitive business environment like one way this might manifest is that if you're in an environment where it's common and beneficial to bend the truth right to your advantage and to, to others disadvantage 
like you become a person of your word who's forthright about the truth and committed to honesty. Or like when you're on social media and uh, someone just rips into you, right? In the comments, like we've all been there. We've all maybe even done it. (laughs) Um, Maybe instead of retaliating, you know, an eye for an eye kind of thing is what Jesus is talking about. We just absorb it. We don't allow that interaction to be the thing that defines this person now in our eyes, but rather we identify them as a child of God and as a sibling, despite that interaction. And, or maybe it's like that we don't, I mean, I, yeah, maybe it's, we just like don't hold contempt for people who are different from us, whether it's socioeconomic status, kind of what you were, what you were saying there, Rob, um, or level of education or political affiliation or race or age or sexual orientation or gender identity or religion or country of origin or any other like divide division thing that we've created that we've figured out how to separate. Like, oh, that's them. And that's me. Like we don't hold anyone in contempt for that. Instead, we just see them as friends, like worthy of love from God and from, from me. And instead of seeing strangers as less than in any way or a threat in any way, we see them as equals and worthy of dignity and respect. But can you see how all this that we're talking about isn't so much about what you do? It's not. What you do, you do do things different. Things are different in what you do. But it's so much more about what you value, what motivates you, what stirs you, what, you, what, what captivates your imagination. Like, just imagine what might happen if every person on the planet had these seeds planted in their hearts and allowed them to grow just a little. Let's say the, the, the global imagination was captured and it had only been a week what do you think you would see differently in the world? Jesus's ultimate vision for the kingdom of heaven is captured and described in John's vision in Revelation. It says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea, which stands for chaos and uncertainty. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the dwelling place of God is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order the old order of things has passed away and he who was seated on the throne said i am making everything new then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty i will give water without cost 
from the spring of the water of life. Jesus is planting those seeds, the seeds that will bloom into this kind of a reality in the Sermon on the Mount. And it may take thousands of years to grow, right? As we've seen, and those seeds are going to have to endure the harshest of droughts and they're going to have to be resilient to pestilence and blight. They will need to be pruned back and diseased sections will need to be removed. But one day, one day, those seeds will reach maturity and the kingdom of heaven will be fully grown. If the world is going to change, and I'm not saying like in the the youth group mantra that we need to be world changers, not like that, but like, like, let's just be realistic. If our world is going to change, it starts with us changing our paradigm, like shifting our imagination and dreaming of a kingdom that can really exist together. And I think this church is, is a place where that's beginning to happen. And I'm thankful for that. Honestly, I have needed this church for my own, the sake of my own sanity and faith, you know, and, um, to, to, to actually believe something can happen that's more than a loud music experience. You know? Which is not to say that the other churches I've been a part of have been bad in any way. It's just like the focus has been different. You know? And the, the service that it offers is different. And what I think Kindred is and what it can continue to be is a place where the kingdom of heaven is this, there's a real pocket of it among us. And we're going to continue to figure out what that means and explore that and, and grow in that and repent to create that and forgive to create more of that. You know what I mean? Is that cool with you? Do you want to do that? I want to do that. If that's cool, I'll try. You try. I'll try. We'll see what happens. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.